<laughs> Get her done. Right there. Well, we, you guys had a good morning, I heard. And uh, I was in uh, Yakima, Yakima, with Harold Everly. You guys know Harold Everly? That guy's awesome. Yeah, he spoke in our school this year, didn't he? And we just had a great time. And I just got in, I think, 4.30, right before the service. So it's been three planes. That's always fun. At least they were short little whoop, whoop <laughs> times. Um, why don't you just turn to your neighbor and say, something cool is about to happen to you. <laughs> say this, God's about to release prosperity on you. <laughs> Come on. Come on, don't be acting like you believe it. I want to talk to you tonight about generosity and how generosity breaks famines. And how many of you are in need of uh, money in your life? Let's just talk about money for a minute. How many of you are needed something besides money in your life? Oh, that's awesome. How many of you don't need anything? <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so, just one. That's awesome. Turn to Genesis 26, and I want to talk to you tonight about how generosity... How many of you know that you can't separate generosity from revival? In the book of Acts, and we'll, we probably, I don't know if we'll get there later, but in the book of Acts, it says that there was no need among them because as the Holy Spirit began to move among people, and as they were getting saved and healed and delivered, the other thing they were doing is they were taking what they had that was extra, they were selling it, they were laying the money at the apostles' feet, and the outcome of that is that there was no need among them. How many know that ultimately that revival doesn't just fill churches it changes social systems. And I, I just have a sense in my own heart that much um, of the social system in our countries, much of the dysfunctional social system in our country comes from the lack of generosity. Let me, I'll broaden it to this lack of generosity of people, but I believe that we are a catalyst, the church is a catalyst to demonstrate to the world what generosity releases in people. Jesus said, Go make disciples of all nations and teach them everything I taught you. How many know that Jesus taught more parables on money than any other single subject? And so we teach, we teach the world how to break famines, how to live in generosity. And, and in fact, I think that, um, this is just my opinion, but I think that our welfare system, one of the struggles I have with our social security system and our welfare system is that it gives money outside of relationship. And I think that the reason why we have a social security system, and listen, I'm, I grew up on social security. My father drowned when I was three years old. And so um, we grew up on welfare uh, the first eight or nine years of my life. So I'm, I'm thankful to live in a country that takes care of its poor. I want to be clear. But how many of you know that the, one of the struggles we have is that we give people money outside of relationship? And what happens is, is that we try to create rules and laws so that the people that we give money to actually need the money, actually are trying to do something to better themselves and don't, in, don't incur a welfare mentality. Am I making any sense? 
And what I'm getting at is this, is that people don't need a handout. They need a hand up. And there is a big difference between a handout and a hand up. And one of the um, I, I work a lot in Africa and, and we as a as a church family work a lot in Africa. And we love Heidi Baker and we also love um, Andy Sibride and, and all that we're doing there in Africa with the Heroes of the Nation and and uh, with Iris Ministries and, and just several other places. Tracy Evans, too, we have in Mozambique doing a great work there. But one of, one of the great examples of a poverty mindset is in Africa. I don't know if you know this, but Africa is the richest continent in all of the world in natural resources. How do you, be the, how, how do you become the poorest continent in the world? As a continent, Africa is the poorest continent of the world. And yet it is the richest continent in natural resources. Can you see a contradiction in terms? And what I'm getting at is that poverty is a way of thinking. You know, somebody once said, if you need money, don't ask for money. Ask why you need money. Now, I want to be careful because I understand that whenever you teach something and then someone takes it to, to, to an extreme, that you can be saying, that if you're broke, then there's something wrong with you spiritually or there's something wrong with you. There's sin in your life. Now, I just want to be really clear that that's not what I'm saying. I do realize that if you take it to what I just said to the extreme that you're like, well, there's something wrong with me because I, I need money. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it, there's a big difference between um, you're in a you're, you're in a season where you don't have enough, where there's not enough money, there's not enough strength, there's not enough. And right now we're talking about money, but, you know, it's in every area of life. There's a big difference between a lack in a season and a lack in a lifetime. If you if you're living in lack over your whole life, let's say that you that you there's never enough. That is not a condition. That's not a financial condition. That's a heart condition. And it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong, but it can be yet you've cre- yet you've made a vow to live like that. But even that, I would I would wonder why you're doing that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. If you're doing it because God told you to, one thing. If you're doing it because you you equate that poverty and spirituality are directly equated, you're going to have a struggle with a lot of examples in the Bible. So. I think that God um, is an individual God and he speaks to each of us personally. And I think we should be careful to not take our own convictions. What God speaks to us personally about what we're to do economically, what social uh, uh, strata we're supposed to live on economically and, and superimpose that over someone else. But I, I'm just so tonight I want to sort of lay out some principles. And I, I, I really feel like, um, you know, I, I, I kind of debated whether I was going to teach on the tithe tonight and I. I don't think I'm going to, but I just want to make a couple of comments. Over the years, the people that I've talked to that struggle with tithing, in other words, they'll come up to me um, the times that I have taught on tithing and say, that's an Old Testament principle. After about seven or eight years of people sharing that with me, I had this idea. I I started asking them, surveying them and saying, before you, before we talk about the the uh, scriptural theological principles of whether or not tithing is Old Testament or, or whether it's brought into the New Covenant. Let me just ask you a question. Do you give more than 10 percent? And all, and I have never had a single person argue over the theology of tithing that gives more. 
I'm not saying there isn't someone. I'm saying I have personally never had, just had it, just, just in a place I was just at, some, a gentleman came up and says, what do you think about tithing? I said, are you asking the question because you give more or less than 10%? He said, well, I think it's a, I think it's an Old Testament principle. And I said, okay, just answer my question. Are you, are you arguing because you think that we should be giving more? Or are you arguing because you don't want to give that much? And he looked at me and I said, I know the answer to that question because I've been asked 150 times. I've had people argue 100, probably 150 times about whether the tithe belongs in the, in the new covenant or the old covenant. And every single person that's ever argued the point is always arguing to give less. And listen, you can only make two arguments in the scripture. I can tell you this right now because I've studied it out. You can argue that the tithe is only old covenant, but if you, but if you argue that, then the only other scriptures there are in the New Testament is that God owns it all. It's the only two arguments you can make theologically. So, you know, if you want to be chintzy, I'd go back to the Old Covenant and just give 10%. Because if you want to become New Covenant, then it, Jesus always steps it up. He says He owns it all. You know, in the Old Testament, if you... Um, if you slept with someone outside of marriage, you, you committed adultery. In the New Testament, if you even look at her and think about that, you've committed adultery. It, it doesn't, it doesn't get, it, you don't give less in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, Jesus owns everything you have, and He'll give back to you what He wants. So, that's what I believe. I happen to be right about that. <laughs> Let me ask you, just how many of you have ever talked to somebody who doesn't believe in tithing and they want to give more? Raise your hand. No, it's a great survey, be honest. Okay, one person. That's good. Out of 600 or 700. So that's, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, you know what? If your theology is the tithe belongs in the Old Covenant, which I could prove to you that it doesn't, but if, you, if that's your theology, it's totally fine with me as long as you're giving more. If you're not giving more, you don't have an argument. You're just trying to figure out some way to, be a, to cheat God and get away with it. You, I don't know how many people would go and have a meal at a restaurant and not tip 10%. But you don't want to give God back 10% for the air you breathe. Just think what would happen if he stopped the service. I mean, you know, if you get your electricity turned off, what happens if you just got your air turned off? God's like, Man, just turn your air off and see how you like that. And... <laughs> Whatever. Okay, Genesis 26, are you there? There was a famine in the land, verse 1. Besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham, so Isaac went to Ger and to Abinadab, king of the uh, Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all this land. And I will establish an oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply by your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Isn't that amazing scripture right there? 
And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How many of you think that that prophecy has been fulfilled already? Two of you. That's awesome. I, I don't. I don't think that the earth, I don't think that all the nations of the earth think that they're blessed when we're with them. I have a sense that a whole bunch of the nations don't like us. Of course, in the name of God. Oh, let's go on being sarcastic. Okay. Verse five. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. You know, this is an interesting dynamic right here. And I just have to stop for a minute. In verse four, he said, listen, all the nations, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And I'll give your descendants all these lands by, and by your descendants, all these nations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then verse five, he says, because Abraham obeyed me. How many of you know that your personal victory with God creates a, a corporate blessing that transcends time and space. Abraham obeyed God. And because Abraham obeyed God, God said, in all your descendants, listen, your obedience is going to create a legacy so that in all of your descendants, I will make them a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He did, it wasn't predicated on their behavior, on the descendants' behavior. It was predicated on Abraham's behavior. God said to Abraham, I love you so much and you served me so well that you, the way that you served me, the way that you loved me, the way you had faith in me, that is going to transcend time and space so that your descendants are going to be a blessing to the earth. And then he tells Isaac, Isaac, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to multiply your seed, but it's because of your dad, not because of you. And it says that Abraham, so he went, so he goes to this land, verse 6, so Isaac lived in Ger, and verse 7, when the men of that place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking that the men of that place might kill him on account of Rebekah, for she was beautiful. And it came about that when he had been there a long time, that Abinelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw, behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. And Abinelech called Isaac and said, behold, certainly she's your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I thought I might die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of my people might have easily have laid with your wife, and you have brought this guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, he who touches this man's wife shall surely be put to death. Stop right there before you get to the next verse. Do you, you know who taught Isaac to do that? His father. Do you know it was the same king? Do you think Abimelech's getting a little tired? <laughs> and do you, do you know that Abraham lied about his wife to save his... You know, he, listen, he didn't just lie. He was willing to give his wife up. I don't know if you get... He, he was willing to prostitute his wife to save his own rear. Isaac did the same thing. And Jacob's name was Jacob. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. And, J and Isaac named Jacob liar. And guess what happened? Jacob had to wrestle with an angel. And what, did he, what was he looking for when he wrestled with the angel? You think he was wrestling for a name change, but he was, he was wrestling for the generational bondage in his life to be broken. 
Because that curse passed from generation to generation to generation to the place where even uh, Jacob married into a family where his father-in-law was a bigger liar than he was. What I'm getting at is that, did you see how lying perpetuated through the generations and it grew generation after generation till finally Jacob was so involved in deceit that he married his, his, his wife's, his wife's dad, Levin, was a greater deceiver than Jacob. And Jacob finally leaves after working for him, I think somewhere around 14 to 17 years. He, go, he leaves that place. He wrestles with an angel. And the angel says, what's your name? He says, my name is Jacob, which means deceiver in Hebrew. Listen, if your name's Jacob in any other language, it doesn't mean that. But in Hebrew, if your dad named you Jacob, it was a problem. He wrestles with the angel. The angel says, what's your name? He said, my, you know, he breaks his leg first. Jacob hangs on. Finally, the angel says, what's your name? He said, my name's Jacob. My name's um, surplanter, liar, deceiver. The angel said, no longer shall your name be Jacob, but your name shall be Israel, meaning a prince with God. What I'm getting at is this. Do, do, you, do you see how generational curses pass from generation to generation? I thought this is really interesting. The context is interesting because so the previous verse is Abinelech knows that his kingdom's in trouble. You know why? Because when Abraham lied about his wife, Abinelech took uh, Sarah into his house. Do you remember this? And he's going to sleep with her. And the night the, before he sleeps with her, I don't know if it's the night before, but before he sleeps with her, he has a dream. And in the dream, God comes to him. That's pretty serious. When they didn't send an angel, he came himself. And I want to tell you something. He didn't dream about God. It says God came to him in a dream. There's a difference between having a dream about God and God, having, God coming to you while you're asleep. And God says to Abinelech, if you touch this man's wife, you are dead. And Abinelech says, wait a second, in the dream, right? Ho, ho, back it up. Back it up. He said, Abraham said that that was his sister. And God says, it is not his sister, it's his wife. And if you touch her, I'll kill you. <laughs> Abinelech comes out of, the, out of his bedroom, out of the dream, gets, gets, comes to Abraham and says to Abraham, you lied about your wife and you almost got me killed. You said she was your sister. And Abraham says, well, she kind of is, but sorry. And it, how many of you know, Abinelech knows, well, like, okay, we're not going to do this again. I'm not going to have another one of those dreams where that scary guy comes to me at night. You know, there's night terrors, then there's night terrors. And so Abinelech is like, hey, hey, hey. And then he, he makes, he, he orders his people, if anyone touches this woman, you'll be dead. <laughs> Now, the next verse is, is interesting. It says, Now Isaac sowed in the land and reaped the same year a hundredfold, for the Lord had blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and great household, and the Philistines envied him. Now, it, now here's the context, though. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land, and Isaac sowed into the land, and he reaped a hundredfold. Why? Because God was with him. Isn't that amazing? I kind of like this part. Like, 
Isaac lies. Abinelech corrects him. God blesses him. I don't know why. It just feels like it, there ought to be a couple of verses in between. At least dot, dot, dot. You know what I'm trying to say? It's like the, the Bible says that he lies about his wife. Abinelech comes and, and corrects him. Uh, Isaac says, hey, I did it out of fear. Doesn't even say I'm sorry. I did it out of fear. And the next verse says, and Isaac sowed the land and God and reaped a hundredfold for God blessed him. I'm like, there ought to be a little punishment, like just a little like this, is like Danny Silk's teaching here or something. You know, it's like God there needs to be like, well, God came to him and, and corrected Isaac and said, don't ever do that again. And Isaac said, I'm really sorry. And then God blessed him. I don't know, it just doesn't seem like it's all there to me, but whatever. How many of you kind of have this mentality that when you do something wrong, that you should pay for it for a while? Like things ought to go wrong for a while. How many of you have ever thought like that? Okay, that's better. I, I think, I think there's, there's something in us that when we do something wrong, Oftentimes we have this sense of justice that that works for us in one sense, but works against us when we repent it. And that is, I think that there's there's something in us that says, I deserve to be punished. And how many of you know that Judas and Peter both lied? Both um, they they both. What am I trying to say? Betrayed Jesus. Sorry. That word just wouldn't come to me. I don't know what it was. They both betrayed Jesus. And Peter got forgiven and Judas hung himself. When Judas, when Judas became sorry, instead of taking on the redemption of Christ, he created his own redemption by hanging himself. That's just a Selah. Just to stop and think about it. How many times do we live in poverty, not because God doesn't want to bless us, but because we're going to do some time. We're going to let God know that we're really sorry about the lying, especially when we got caught. We get caught lying and then we're like, OK, you know what? I just need to do a couple of, you know, I just need to do some some penance. I need to do some Hail Marys. I need to I need to do something the Protestant Hail Marys. I don't know what that is. Some ideas come to me, but I'll just keep going. <laughs> do you know that every time that you do something wrong and you ask Jesus to forgive you and you sincerely repent, repent just means not that you cried or you got emotional. That's great if that happens. No problem. But repentance, it, it, there's a lot of people who cry and don't repent. And there's a lot of people who confess and don't repent. As a matter of fact, you can kind of get, you can get a sense, you can relieve a lot of pressure by talking about what you did wrong and still not repent. Repent means that you change the way that you thought about what you did. In this case, if Isaac repented, he would, he would say to himself, never again will I lie to save myself because I can see that God will protect me. God protected me by giving Abimelech a dream. If I would have trusted him, he would have protected me another way. It wasn't necessary for me to lie to get God's protection. That would have been repentance. He would have thought differently about the way he behaved. Are you with me? 
Now, if that came with tears, that's good. But tears aren't in themselves repentance. Being sorry is not repentance. Repentance means that you repent, that you change the way that you think about what you did. Are you following me? And when, once we repent, once we, once we are truly sorry and we have changed the way that we think about that, and we receive God's forgiveness, we ask God to forgive us, allowing punishment to continue in our life is saying to Jesus, what you did in my life, what you did on the cross wasn't great enough for me. It wasn't good enough for me. And every time we do that, we take on the Judas spirit and we start hanging ourselves. I can't tell you how many people that we have prayed for as a team over and over who come up for prayer and we start praying for them. And, and you know, through the course of conversation, we find out that this person is holding unforgiveness. But the unforgiveness, I would say, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but a high percentage of the time is for themselves. Oftentimes, it's like, I've forgiven my mother, I've forgiven my father. And we go, how about you? Have you forgiven yourself? Have you allowed Jesus to forgive you? And have you forgiven yourself? Uh, yeah, I don't deserve it. No, let's just be really clear. You don't deserve anything. <laughs> you, you see where I'm coming from. The, the truth is, we don't deserve anything. So, I, I, I did it on purpose. That's what it means to sin. You can't sin on accident. See, an accident is an accident. Not a sin. Sin means you did it on purpose. You knew and you did it anyway. Some people can allow God to forgive them and they can forgive themselves for something they know they didn't do on purpose. Like, I didn't do that on purpose. You know, I hurt that person's feelings, but it wasn't in my heart. But if you knew, like, I am going to hurt that person right now because I'm mad at them and I want them to feel the pain of my anger and you hurt them, then it's like, I think maybe I should give God, let God know I'm really serious about the fact that I'm sorry by just allowing some punishment for a few weeks to happen to me. Maybe, maybe because we're talking about money, maybe it's that you, you haven't been wise with your money, and so you've lived in poverty, and you're like, I deserve it. You do. You deserve it. Shame and guilt on you. Okay, you got past that? Now, ask Jesus to forgive you. Change the way you think about the way that you spend money and then ask God to bless you immediately so that he can get between your sowing and reaping. Because Jesus doesn't just not want to judge you negatively. Normally, when we think of judgment, we think of negative. God's not just trying to not. God isn't just not judging you. He's actually wanting to step in between your sowing and reaping. He actually wants you to not have to sow what you reap when you repent. You go, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's probably why you're living in poverty. And if you could probably work it all out, you wouldn't be here today. Or maybe you wouldn't. So, <laughs> I've shared this several times, but you, you know what the difference is between mercy and grace? If you're going 100 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone, and a police officer pulls you over, and he doesn't give you a ticket, you got mercy. You did not get what you deserved. But if you're going 100 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone and the police officer picks, uh, pulls you over 
and he gives you $1,000 for speeding? That's grace. Grace means you got what you didn't deserve. How many of you know that while we were still sinners, you're like, wait, that, 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 that example is way exaggerated. No, it's way under-exaggerated. While we were still sinners, in deserving of hell, he saved us. That's way more than a thousand bucks for speeding. In fact, Paul says, he, he starts teaching on this grace, and he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Bill made this statement a couple of years ago. He said, if, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then which cities are most ripe for revival? In fact, Paul teaches so much on grace in chapter 4, uh, chapter, uh, four and 5 in the book of Romans that he finally ends with this statement in chap- at the end of chapter 5. He said, so shall I sin, so grace will abound. Because he made such a great case that the more you sin, the more $1,000 bills you get. And then he goes, oh, wait a second, I just created this, this idea that maybe I should sin so I could get more from God. And then he makes this statement. How shall I sin? How shall I sin if I'm dead? Dead people don't sin. And then he goes on Romans 6. If you've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And he makes this case for the fact that, that dead people don't sin. Are you following me? But the point is, is that grace is so powerful that it's almost like I should sin so that I should get some more thousand dollar bills. And all I'm saying to you is this, is that part of a poverty mentality is actually a ramifications and the manifestations is that you haven't received, you haven't received the redemptive value, the full redemptive value of the cross. And so you think that you deserve to be punished. And that's true, except for he received the punishment that you deserve on the cross so that you could be set free from that way of thinking. And if you're still allowing yourself to be punished, you're under the spirit of Judas and you're creating your own redemption. And it isn't positive. Hebrews says you're stepping on the blood of Christ. He doesn't receive it as a compliment. When we when we allow the enemy to punish us or other people to punish us because we deserve it, because I'm talking about after we repent. Are you with me? Once we repent and we receive forgiveness from that day on, we go. If we don't say, I no longer deserve to be punished because of what Jesus did for me. If I continue to allow people, whether it's a spirit being or whether it's a person or whether it's a a social system to punish me after I've received forgiveness, then I am not saying to Jesus, I just want to prove to you how sorry I am. I'm saying to Jesus, what you did wasn't good enough for me. And he never takes that as a compliment. He, said, he calls it self-righteousness. And he says it's filthy rags. And I don't even want to tell you what the word rags means in that, but it's not good. It's ugly. I believe. Are you guys all right? This in, um, so, he... Isaac makes a fortune. And when does he make a fortune? In a famine. Isn't it just like God? Isn't it just like God to say, I'm going to make you rich when everyone around you says it's humanly impossible. 
Isn't it just like God to say to Gideon, Gideon, you got a few thousand guys on your, on, in, your, in your army, and I know that you're going up against a, a, an army that's innumerable, but people could still say that you won because of your strength. I don't want that. Take your guys down and have them drink water. And remember this. First he says, tell, tell them anyone who's afraid, go home. That took care of most of them. And then he takes them down and says, now, you know, have them drink water like, and whoever drinks water like a, like a dog, those people can stay with you. Now, I wonder if he would have said after they got down to 300, okay, now all of you that are afraid, you can go home also. I think it would have been nobody left. There are times when God just reduces us to his strength. I have people say all the time, God reduced us to our strength. No, he doesn't reduce you to your strength. He reduces you to his strength. It's just like God. Do you know that in the, the more millionaires were made in, during the Depression than any other single period of time in American history? It's just like God to bless people in a famine. You're like, okay, here I am, God. Bless me in a famine. What did, what did Isaac do? He planted in a famine. Do you know what a famine is like? No rain, right? It doesn't make sense to sow in a famine. But Isaac did. Where everyone else was starving, he was eating good. In um, Psalms 126, verse 5, it says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you, do, you, do you understand what the psalmist is saying? Yes, no. I'm in a trance. I'm still thinking about whether or not I'm living in poverty. It's, see, they're, they're sowing in tears. Why? Because the seed that they're sowing, they need to eat. So they're having to sow seed that their children need to eat. You understand? We're talking about, we're talking about people who are in, who are in, uh, in poverty. So they're, they're sowing, knowing that as they're sowing the seed, that this is, this is seed that could be turned into meal that their children could eat. So they're sowing with tears. But it says that he that sows with tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He that goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, think about this. If you, if you, if things are tight and you have and you plant, let's say you plant um, 10 acres of corn and things get really tight. So instead of planting 10 acres of corn, you eat some of the corn and you plant eight acres next year. I mean, you plant eight acres. How many of you know, first of all, that you're always eating last year's crop? 
Some people are like, I, I'm giving, I'm giving, nothing's happening. Go, well, just wait for one season. It'll, it'll change. You're always eating what you planted last year. Are you following me? So, so let's say that you sow, that you sow, you have 10 acres and things get really tight one year. So you eat two acres worth of seed. So you only plant eight acres. And guess what happens the next year when you harvest? You have, you reap less, so you have less seed. And guess what? If you let your decision be made on your immediate condition, you're going to sow, let's say, six acres. Because you're going to eat two acres of the seed so you can survive this next season. But what happens next year when the harvest comes? Now you only have six acres of corn, and guess what's going to happen? Can you, can you see how you're, how you're winding down into poverty? Because you're sowing less and less and less. So what does this person do that the psalmist is depicting? He's got ten acres, or she has ten acres, and, they, and it's tight. But they're planting ten acres. Because they know that if they don't plant ten acres, then next year it's going to get tighter. So she's sowing, or he's sowing with tears. Knowing that instead of having three square meals a day, maybe we're only going to have two. But if we don't sow with tears, then next year it's going to get tighter and we're going to wind down into poverty. Let me just say it this way. You can't let a famine tell you what to do. Because if you do, the world will come out of a famine and you won't. Sometimes famines are caused. Sometimes God allows famines in our life to see what's in our heart. In fact, God said this to the children of Israel. He said it to Moses. He said, I brought, the, I brought you into the wilderness to test you to see what was in your heart. You say, well, God knows my heart. Yeah. How he finds out what's in there is interesting, though. God knows all things. He does. But how he figures out what's in there is interesting. He said, I brought you into the wilderness to test you to see what was in your heart. In the story of Joseph, do you know Joseph got this prophetic, he got a prophetic dream. Do you remember this? Are you guys bored or are you okay? Okay. Remember Joseph got a prophetic dream, has this prophetic dream. And in this prophetic dream, he, he, he dreamt that his brothers were all going to bow down to him. Do you remember this? And then he had another dream the next night and his parents were going to bow down to him. Do you remember that? Okay. And then you know what happened, right? His brothers were jealous of him, sold him into slavery, and he went from the pit to the prison. And finally he goes to the palace, right? Well, the psalmist says this. That well... Um, it says that... It says something in the psalmist... The psalmist said something besides the Lord is my shepherd. And that's the only one that comes to my mind right now. It says this. It says, until the word of the Lord came to pass in Joseph's life, the word tested Joseph. Until his word, here's how it says, it says, until his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested Joseph. Sometimes the Lord allows famines in our life to see what's in our heart. But let me say this. Sometimes famines 
follow misuse abundance. Sometimes the Lord blesses us and we spend it all on us. Sometimes the Lord gives us, we have 10 acres and the Lord gives us enough to plant seed for 20 and instead all of our kids get fat. We're like so laid back, like we don't even have to plant a lot. Look at all the seed we got. Man, we got, we got corn. We have our friends over. We can party every day for three, for 300 days. And, we don't, and the next year, it doesn't even occur to us to plant anything. That we didn't plant anything because we're so, we don't even have to plant anything because we got enough for two years. So we don't have to plant anything. How do you change the economic climate of your life? Do you know that you control it, not God? You decide what social system you want to live in. What economic social level you want to live at. You decide that. I'm not saying you decide that in, in, this week. I'm saying as a lifestyle. You decide where you want to live as a lifestyle. Everybody has downturns. Everybody has hard times. Everybody struggles in different areas. I, I'm, I'm not taking that away. I'm talking about lifetime. You decide what social class you want to live on. You decide what spiritual class you want to live on. You know, Jesus said from the least to the greatest, right? Jesus said there are levels of greatness in the kingdom. Now, how many of you know that the least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest person who ever lived in the Old Testament? So you got a pretty good start. But you decide what social, economic, spiritual climate you want to live on. Why? Because the, because the economy of God begins with this. Luke 6.38 Give and it shall be given to you. It doesn't say, it'll be given to you and then give. It says what? Give and it shall be given to you. And they shall pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running all over. For by the standard of your measure, it will be measured in return to you. Did you get that at all? That's in the New Testament, by the way. You can't even argue that one. Let me read it for you one more time just to torment you. Give and it shall be given to you. They shall pour it into your lap. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running all over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Bill tells a story. He's been telling the story for a lot of years. I don't know where he got the story. But he tells a story of a pauper who's, who's walking along the road. I think he's eating some, I don't know what it was. Kernels of corn, I think. And a, and, a, and a king comes by in this big entourage. And he's in a, he's in a chariot. And he, he calls for the chariot to stop by this pauper. And he, looks, he opens the door of the chariot. He says to the pauper, he says, give me some of your, your corn you have to eat there. And the pauper takes three kernels and gives the king... Three kernels. And the colonel and the and the king takes three golden coins and gives the pauper three golden coins. And the pauper and and the king 
orders his chariot to move on. And the pauper stops and says, oh, that I would have given him the whole bowl. By the standard of your measure, it'll be measured to you. You give with a teaspoon, God will give you back with a teaspoon. A hundredfold on a teaspoon isn't a lot. I don't know if you got that. You plant teaspoonfuls. So God says, okay, I'll give you pressed down, shaken together. I'll give you uh, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Well, that's still not very much if you're giving by the teaspoon. God goes, okay, you gave me a teaspoon. I'll give you 30 teaspoons back. I don't know if you can feed your family on 30 teaspoons. Now, let's say you give 30 tablespoons. I'm sorry, you give a tablespoon. God goes, okay, I'm going to give you 30 tablespoons back. Well, it's getting better. What happens if you give God 30 gallons? You give God one gallon, and He gives you 30 gallons back. Because it starts out with 30, 60, and 100 fold, so the least you get back is 30, right? That's pretty good. That's 3,000% 3, increase. That's not bad, is it? So, so you give God 30 teaspoon, you give God a teaspoon, He gives you 30 back. By your measure, so you decide what kind of climate you want to live in. God doesn't. He said, you give, that'll determine what you get back. Well, things are really tight. You don't understand. No, see, God doesn't measure what you give. God doesn't measure your generosity by what you give. He measures it by what you have left over. There's only two times we know where, that we know where Jesus sat in the temple. One time we know that Jesus sat in the seat reserved for the Messiah. Thus, it tells us that Jesus was sitting, sat in the seat reserved for the Messiah. The only other time we know where Jesus was sitting was by the offering. And it says he was watching to see what they put in. So Jesus doesn't care what I give. Well, in the temple, he was watching to see how much people put in. Can you imagine Bill standing up here? <laughs> watching to see what each person put in. And an elderly lady comes and puts in a few coins, and he goes, this lady gave more than all of you. I watched what every one of you put in. You, you put in $100, but you're a billionaire. That wasn't much. This lady put in three, three coins, three cents. But she gave more than all y'all. Why? Because of what she had left over. Was nothing. She didn't have anything left over. Jesus said, you can either serve God or mammon. Mammon is the spirit of money. He said, you can't serve two masters. Either you'll hold to the one and despise the other. If you're having a hard time with this conversation, it might be because you're protecting the wrong spirit. Like, he's trying to get my money. No, I'm not trying to get your money. I'm going to take an offering. It's up to you what you give. I'm just saying that if you have a lifelong struggle with poverty, that you made that choice. 
God didn't. Because God wants you to be prosperous in every dimension of your life. If you don't have lots of friends, it's because you're not friendly. I don't, no one likes me. Oh, it's because you're not very likable. Well, how do I be likable? You show kindness to other people that you want back. What is it you want? You need more friends? Then, then be friendly to more people. Well, they won't give it back to me. Well, could be right. But if you sow friendship in enough people, you'll eventually have as many friends as you need. <laughs> Some people have cirrhosis of the giver. It's true. When it comes to giving, some people will stop at nothing. <laughs> you, some of you will get home and get that. Ecclesiastes 11.4 says this, He who watches the wind will not sow. He who looks at the clouds will not reap. You know what he's getting at there? He's saying that the conditions are never perfect. The conditions are never perfect. There's, like, there's always some reason why you won't sow. There's always some reason why you won't reap. You see people that are wealthy like, oh, they've had it all handed to them. No, no they haven't. No, you, if they have, they won't keep it. You know people that get it handed to them like they win the lottery? Go see where there are five years from then. One guy won the lottery twice. And still on welfare. Yeah, when people, when you give people a handout instead of a hand up, they just spend it. <laughs> it's so serious here tonight. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just trying to help. I'll look around and I'm like, man, there's so many people that are in serious financial you know, in a serious financial crisis. And I know what that's like. I mean, we live like that, too. It's tough. It's, and, and there are seasons where, you know, I feel like there are seasons that you just go through that. There are seasons where, where, um, and I always want to be careful. I, I know what I'm saying is right. I just, I just know that some people who are already are isolated. For instance, I think there are times when God isolates you for a season. And where you're, in a sense, your only friend is God. I don't mean that, you're, that you don't have friends normally. I just mean there tends to be a time when God goes, listen, I'm just gonna, you're going to deal with me. But I don't want to give people permission to like go live on an island for a year and go, well, you know. Uh, people are already like, you know, eccentric. They're like, there it is, right there, the word of the Lord. That's what I've been doing my whole life, living on this island. Just got good word right there. God told me to open my own monastery. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> Sorry. I feel a little bit like something tonight. That isn't you. It's totally me. Luke 16.10. Let's just do this a little bit more. He who is faithful and very little is faithful also in much. 
He who is unrighteous in very little in a little, very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have been if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you have not been faithful in the use of what is another's, who will give you what's your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. So what's he saying? He's saying, you, you, you know, you're like, you know what, if I had a lot of money, I would give a lot away. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. What you do when you have a little always determines what you will give when you have a lot. You'll always figure out some way that you need it to spend it on you more than anyone else when you have a lot. And you develop attitudes. And here, this is interesting. He said, he said, if you said something here that was really good, he said, therefore, <laughs> therefore, if you've not been faithful with the use of unrighteous wealth, who will give you true riches? In other words, he's saying, he calls money unrighteous wealth. If, you've not, if you're faithful with money, then God says, I'll give you true riches. What are true riches? It's the kingdom. Right? And then he says, if you've, been, if you've not been faithful with what is another's, who will give you what's your own? How many of you know what God's saying there? He's saying that money is his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If you've not been faithful with what is someone else's, well, listen, I, I don't know if I believe in tithing. Okay, that's fine. Then everything is God's. And he'll give you, you just give it all to him and he'll give you back what he thinks you should have. I love uh, T.D. Jakes. Do you guys ever watch T.D. Jakes? I love T.D. Jakes. I, was, I just turned him on late at night one night and, and I think it was in a hotel room and he was and is just in the middle of his message and he was teaching on tithing and he had a whole bucket of, of dimes. And, and he was throwing them into the audience. And he said, for 10 cents, God will make you a partner. God, he will take all the responsibility and you get 90% of the business. And he's, and he's throwing dimes into, into the audience. Now, who wouldn't want to be partners with God when, you, when, it, when he takes 100% of the responsibility, you give 10% of the money, he gives you 90% back. Who wants to be a partner with God? He's throwing these dimes in the audience. And you, you know how black churches are. They're just doing what I wish you guys would be doing right now. They're just going crazy. Someday I'm going to pastor me a black church. I won't have to ask one time, are you guys getting this? They don't even have to get it. And they're like, oh, wow. Sister culture, man. Huh, Danny? That's it right there. That's what we need. <laughs> You're like, we're thinking. Save that for when you get home. Okay? Just think about the message when you get home. That's why we have it on podcast. So you can listen for your sake. Right now you're listening for my sake. <laughs> uh, you know I'm kidding, right? All right. I hope you know I'm kidding. That would be the opposite of everything I'm teaching right now, wouldn't it? I just demonstrated selfishness just to see how that felt to you. See what happens when you live and preach just for you? That's how it feels. 
<laughs> I hate when I'm an example. Okay, let's move on. Matthew 25. It's, the kingdom of God is like a man who went on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each one by his own ability. Everybody say ability. ability. He went on his journey. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. I'm sorry. I used manipulation on you. I shouldn't have done that. I tried to get the motivation and that didn't work. So I went right to witchcraft. But I am sorry. Now I'll move on and not punish myself. Verse 16. And immediately, the one who had received five talents went and traded them and gained five more. And the, in the same manner, the one who received two talents gained two more. But the one who received one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, this isn't the funny part. Now, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and settled the accounts with them. And one who had received five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrust me with five talents, and see, I've gained five more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You who have been faithful with few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the what? Joy of your master. Thank you very much. Also, the one who had received two talents came and said, Master, you entrust me with two talents. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master and the one who received one received one talent okay this is where we need to get somber and the one who received one talent came and said to his master i knew you were a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you gathered i'm sorry gathering where you scattered no seed and i was afraid and i went and hid away and hid your talent in the ground see you have what is yours but his master answered and said you wicked lazy slave you knew, <laughs> this is reading the Bible. I'm reading the Bible. These are the red letters. And then, then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and upon my arrival, I would receive my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For who, everyone who has, what? More shall be given to him, and he shall have an abundance. But the one who, from one who does not have, ah, from one, from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So much for socialism. It's just a thought. So we have some political. Some politicians think that the people who have the most are the people who should be taxed the highest. And here Jesus took away the one who, guy who just had one and gave it to the guy who was the best with what he had. That's just an interesting dynamic. You know, do you think that, see, God, it says that the, the kingdom's like this. He gave to a man five talents and he gave him according to his ability in other words if the guy would have been worthy of 10 he would have given him 10 but he only gave him five because that's all he had that's all the ability he had 
But what happened to him while he's gaining talents? He's gaining ability. Are you with me? So how do you get better? How do you get more? You take what you have and you invest it. What was the, what was the guy who had one talent? What, how did he view God? He said, I know that you're, that you're a hard taskmaster. And that's why I didn't invest. Because I was afraid. Isn't it interesting that what he thought of God, the way it became the way God related to him? In Malachi, I'm sorry, um, that's not what I wanted to read. In Proverbs 13, uh, 13, 22, says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his what? Children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So we say, well, the wealth of the, of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So we're going to receive the wealth of the nations is coming to us. The wealth of sinners, the wealth of wicked people is stored up for the righteous. In the Bible, who is, what's the only example of wicked people who gave money to the righteous. It's the story of the talents. Who's the wicked person? The one who buried the talent. Who's the righteous one? The one who had five who made ten. Remember Jesus said, you wicked, lazy slave. Who, who is the wicked people that are giving money to the righteous? The people who are afraid and keep their money and try to hoard the little bit they have. Those are the ones who are going to give it to the people who make a lot. In the story of the talents, the wicked person was the one who didn't invest their money, but was afraid and hid it. T.D. Jakes doesn't have these moments. You should be saying, and you're not T.D. Jakes. <laughs> you want to change your economic climate? Do something with what you have. I don't have very much. That's all right. Do something with what little bit you have. Jesus doesn't care what you don't have. He only cares what you have. He only multiplies what you have. Well, you know what? We need this much and all we have is is two fishes and five loaves. All right, give those to Jesus and you'll be surprised that you get 12 baskets full back. When he gets done with your two fishes and five loaves and you dedicate your two fishes and five loaves to Jesus, not only will you see a miracle of a whole bunch of people getting fed through the little bit that you gave, but the, the, the other part of the miracle is you'll go home with a lot more than you came with. You can't, you can't have in your heart, you can't have it in your heart. Listen, you can't live to bless other people and not yourself be blessed. It's impossible. Let me just say that again. You can't have it in your heart to bless other people and not yourself be more blessed than you came with. There is no way that you can say, I want to give all my money away to the poor 
and not be richer when you're when the whole cycle's over than you were when you gave it. Unless unless you sabotage your own wealth. And you can do that by feeling like you don't deserve it back. And so not only <laughs> there are people who just have this thing. It doesn't matter how much money God gives them back. Somehow they're always broke. And it has, I think, a lot of times to do with what we talked about in the very, very beginning of this message. And they just feel like they don't deserve it. If you feel like you don't deserve it, you will figure out some way to sabotage your friendships. You'll figure out some way to sabotage your health. You'll figure out some way to sabotage your prosperity. You will figure out some way that God can't possibly give back to you. That's a good word. Um, okay. Probably we should be getting close to landing. So everyone, turn off all your electronic equipment. Put your seatbelt on. Stow away your computers, please. We're coming in, yeah. We're coming in for a landing, I think. Um, when I first came to Bethel, we had um, three businesses. Four, uh, we had three auto parts stores and a remanufacturing plant, and. Before I came to Bethel, we had made a deal with a supplier. Our supplier um, wanted to buy our auto parts stores. There was the second largest supplier of auto parts, aftermarket auto parts in the United States, I think actually in the world. And so they made a deal to buy us, and they said, listen, this is how we'll pay, this is how we'll pay for part of the store. We'll create an 18-month escrow. You buy auto parts from us. You don't pay for them. And we bought $100,000 worth of auto parts a month. So they said, in that way, we'll pay, we'll pay you back. And then at the end of 18 months, we'll pay you the bulk of what's left, what, what we owe you. I said, okay. So we bought auto parts and didn't pay for them for 18 months. And at the end of 18 months, the, the week the escrow was supposed to close on Friday, on Monday morning, we get a call from their attorney that the company went bankrupt, that bought us. And we were already at Bethel. Welcome to the world of Oz. Well, by the time we got there, we owed them about $1.5 million. That was just one supplier. Plus, we owed 127 other suppliers. And we were at Bethel, and we were making... Uh, well, the first year at Bethel, we didn't make any income until the school started. And then Kathy and I, we made $1,000 a piece. So we made 2000 a month for the, first, for the second year we were at Bethel. And we owed, like, I don't know what the exact total was. I was a little bit afraid to add it up, but somewhere was around $1.6 or $7 million. And, um, and, and we had three auto parts. We had three auto parts stores. And we had three auto parts stores that no other supplier wanted to supply auto parts to because we owed $1.5 million to one auto parts supplier, and we were waiting for the, their bankruptcy court to tell us what we were going to do about that. And so every other auto parts supplier said, we're not going to sell you auto parts. You owe $1.5 million to someone else. So I don't know what you do when you're a dairy and you have no milk. Or you're a service station, gas station, and you have no gas. 
So anyway, it was a little bit stressful. Had 40 employees, three locations. And so um, I went in to see the elders. First, I went in to see Bill and I told Bill the whole situation. I'm I'm not even giving you the details. This is really about a 40 minute conversation, all the details. So I sat down with Bill, gave him all the details, and I said, you know, I owe, I owe 127 suppliers. Probably 20 of them live in Reading. I have no money. We're living in a little apartment. We moved here, lived in a little apartment, lost our, our house that we built, our kids grew up in, lost every, all, everything except for our furniture and our two cars. And so I said to Bill, you know, we're going to quit Bethel and we're going to go bankrupt and we're going to start over. But I, I don't want to be at Bethel while all this happens. And Bill's all, well, I don't think that's a good plan. I said, well, I think that's a good plan. I, I don't want to be on staff and have everyone go, that guy owes me $5,000. That guy owes me $1,000. That guy owes me $150. I, I, I have no money to pay anybody. So I said, I'm going to, I said, I want to, I need to tell the elders what I'm doing. So um, tonight's the board meeting, so I, I want to go talk to the board and let them know what we're doing. So Bill said, you know, in the most gracious way he can, okay. So I sit down with the board and I tell them all the details because I, I feel like they need to know. All, I don't want no secrets. This is where I made mistakes. This is what happened. This is the whole deal. I give them all the details. We get all done, and one of our, one of the elders who've been on the, the team for like 30 years, he stands up and he says, uh, "We're a family, and we don't leave when there's trouble. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't know this circumstance was going to happen, and the things you did wrong, you worked out. And so we don't, we're not ashamed that you're in trouble." And we're a family, and families don't split up when there's a problem. They stay together. And that's what he said. Of course, by then I'm in a little puddle of tears. And he said, um, and he said I think it was him or, or one of the other elders said, Yeah, and we don't want you to bankrupt. Now, if you need to bankrupt, we're all right with you bankrupting. But we want you, we want you to give us six months to pray for you for a miracle. <laughs> a miracle. I said, um, okay, well, let me just tell you, I have no faith for this. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I have no faith for this. They're like, we do. I said, okay. So they prayed for me. And I walked out still having no faith for this. I forget the timeline, but within three months, the bankruptcy court, remember, I didn't go bankrupt. Their bankruptcy court that they forgave me 950000 That was a good start, right? Still owe a lot. That was a good start. I owed the SBA around 300000 287000 So the SBA, they're calling me, they're calling me. You know, I finally like, I guess I better go meet with them. So I sat down, talked with them, and, and about, a month, uh, I guess maybe a month later, they called and they said, um, Chris, we want, we want you to come and talk to us. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, this is like, this is not fun. How many know this is not fun? 
And by the way, the other suppliers, they're all calling because when the phone gets disconnected, they typically want to figure out what's going on. So they're all sending certified letters. They're coming in piles. Not You're not counting them. They're coming in piles and phone calls are coming in. And it's a little bit stressful. So I go talk, I go to the talk to the bank and I'm like, oh, I am sweating bullets because I, I, you know, I mean, there are lots of weaknesses in my life, but being irresponsible isn't one of them. I am Mr. Responsible. I pay my bills. It may be late, but I pay. I give my word. I keep my word. So I, I am feeling like about that big because I cannot perform. Like if I worked day and night for the next 15 years, I could not pay back 1.6 or $7 million. So I go sit down with the the, um, the SBA that I owed them like 287000 This is after they sold my house and that I gave them back. And um, and so the SBA guy sitting there, his name's Mr. Chamberlain. He's telling me, you know, da-da-da-da-da, you know, make us an offer. Make you an offer. I, you, I owe 287000 I'm going to make you an offer. On $2,400 a month, I'm going to make you an offer. I said, I, what, what kind of offer could I make you? He said, I don't know. Make an offer. <laughs> he said, I would feel stupid making any kind of an offer. I mean, you know, what's a fair offer? An offer 50%? You know, I, how am I going to pay it? He said, no, just make any offer. I said, okay, I offer $10,000. And I said, jokingly. He said, okay, I'll send that offer in. I said, that's stupid, Mr. Chamberlain. He said, well, they, they, they sent me a certified letter and said, you're to make them an offer. I said, okay. That's my offer, $10,000. Calls me a week later. Chris, they didn't accept your offer. <laughs> what a shock. He said, but they'll take 11500 <laughs> Under one condition. I said, what's the condition? You have 30 days to get it. 30 days to get it. Where am I going to get it? I was hoping for a golden egg. You know, I checked that out several times. That didn't work. So I got 30 days to pay 11.5 to pay off 287,000 or 285,000, whatever it was. On the 28th day, a man hands me a check. He doesn't know me for 30,000. The exact amount I owe the SBA, the IRS, and the State Board of Equalization. I owe them 29000 something. So I paid them all off in one day. I came to Mr. Chamberlain. I, I call him up on the 28th day. No, on the 30th day. I'm sorry. I get it on the 28th day. On the 30th day, I call him. I said, I need to meet with you. He goes, all right. I said, I'll be there in a few minutes. So... I drive down there and I hand him a certified check for 11500 He opens the check and tears start running down his eyes. He throws, he's not a believer, throws his arms around me. He said, in all my years, I've never seen this happen before. And so, and he goes, you know what? The next day he calls me and said, I took it off your credit record. I took it off your credit record. People started handing me money. Thousands of dollars. We did a conference here. I didn't speak. I got ten thousand dollars. 
And thousand dollar bills. Keep just people kept handing me thousand dollar, hundred dollar bills. I go to my office, there was a thousand dollars sitting on my desk. I go to my my box, there was a thousand dollars in there, and someone handed me eight thousand dollars in the front row. A man I don't know, he just walked up and said, God told me to give you this. I'm like, Oh, this is better than a business. <laughs> and over three years I either paid stuff off, got it reduced, uh Got everything taken care of. One point, whatever it was, seven million, one point six million. The, the crazy thing is the process. You know, I, I I kept a journal of the process. This, I would go places. I was a, ma- a money magnet. A people would out of the blue. The man who gave me thirty thousand dollars, he had a dream, and in the dream. He, he had just received an inheritance. That wasn't the dream. He, he had just received an inheritance. He had a dream that, that night, one night, that he was to give me $30,000. So he just wrote a check for $30,000 and gave it to me. People would come up to me and say, a, a person I, I, I hadn't seen in four years wrote me a letter and said, hey, um, I just felt like we're supposed to give you this $5,000. And they sent me $5,000. I hadn't seen him in four years. Just people that, you know, it was just coming from everywhere. And, and I, I don't think it had anything to do with my faith. I think it had to do with the elders. I think, I think that God just honored the fact that, I think that God honored the fact that I submitted to them and that they had faith for the situation that I had no faith for. And um, I just, first thing I want you to do tonight is if you, um, I don't know if we should do this, maybe we should. If you need to repent for, let's see, I make it easy on you. For something we talked about tonight, <laughs> I want you to stand up first. And when you're standing up, you're humbling yourself. You're saying, I, that's me. I need to repent. Maybe you haven't been tied. Maybe you haven't been giving. Maybe you've lived under fear. Uh, uh, it's affected, it's affected your, your generosity. You, you want to repent for fear that's affected your generosity. There's a good, wide, broad statement. How's that? Okay. So when you're standing up, you're saying, I was wrong. And I'm thinking differently about this. That's why you're standing, right? Okay. Okay. Let, let, those of you who are standing, pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me for allowing fear to affect my generosity. I'm sorry. That I've robbed other people of their blessing. I've robbed your kingdom of giving back to you what you've given to me. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live like this anymore. And from this day forward, with your grace, I'm thinking differently about this. I'll be generous in every season of my life. And Lord, I, I, I want to change. The way I look at giving, not just money, but the giving of myself. And Lord, I promise to begin to sow where I once withheld. And I'm expecting you to take care of me through this time that I'm waiting for a harvest in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, you can go ahead and sit down. Okay, now, if you're in, um, I guess we've been using finances. Do you know that I don't, that I'm using finances, but that some of the greatest areas that people are in need have nothing to do with money? Do you know that? You know we've been talking about finances. It's really easy to measure, and, and maybe that's the most, maybe, that's, maybe that is the emphasis right now because of the economy. But do you know that I'm talking about every area of your life? Whatever area of your life you lack in, just begin to sow in that area. Did you hear that really clearly? Okay. If you are in need of money, though, I want you to stand up. Uh, let me say... Wait, wait. Sit down. Sit down. I'll, I'm sorry. I want to make sure that I'm praying for the people that I feel convicted in, my whole, in the Holy Spirit that I'm supposed to pray for. I, I, mean, I don't mean that, you, that, you, that you'd like to have more money. Everybody would stand, probably. I'm saying you're in desperate situation and you need God to come through. I'm going to pray for all of you, but those are the people I want to pray for right now. Would you stand up? You're in a desperate situation and you need God to come through financially. Would you stand up? <laughs> Same people spit up. All right. Just making sure who we're praying for right there. Okay. Um, uh, you know, um, this thing happened and I want to tell you about it real quickly. There's a, a, a man in our body who's um, pretty, pretty wealthy. But, um, and, and, you know, he's been through hard times like everyone else, but he just has this thing of attracting money. And about six years ago, um, I, I, we were, we were, it was during a conference, and he was here, and all my kids were here. All my kids were here, and all my grandkids were here for a conference. I can't remember what conference it was. And we were up front, and we were worshiping. And during the worship, I felt like the Lord said, not only do I want to pay off all your debts, but I want to reverse the spirit of poverty that's on you. And it's been on your family. That whole welfare thing that's been two generations in your family, I want to break that over you. I said, okay. So he said, I want you to go and I want you to gather up all your family and I want you to take him over. I'll call him John. His name is John. I want you to take him over to John and I want you to have John pray for your whole family. And I said, okay. So I went and got my, my kids and, my, and my, some of my, a couple of my grandkids were in the nursery or children's church, whatever, or whatever it was, it was a conference, so whatever they were doing, babysitting them. I said, go, go get all the kids. Go get all of our kids. Go get all of our grandkids. And so the worship's still going on, and we went over to the seat right over there where the camera is, and I just took my whole family, went over there during worship, just kind of tried not to draw a lot of attention to, to it. But, and I said uh, to John, John, I need you to pray over my family. He looks at me and goes, what am I praying I said, whatever it is that you have that, that, is, that makes you wealthy, I want you to pray that over me and over my family. And I want you to break the spirit of poverty over me. He said, all right. <laughs> all right. Join hands. Boom. We're all joined hands. And he prayed like maybe a, maybe a 30-second prayer. You know, it was loud in there. It was hard to hear. He wasn't praying to us, though. He's praying to God, right? And he just prayed that the spirit of poverty would be broken over us, over my family, over my lineage, and, and prosperity would come over us. That must have been about five years ago. Since then, my, our, our, our financial income for all of my kids has prospered. All of my kids own their own houses. Uh, my, my income has dramatically increased. For a season, it doubled every year. And, uh, and I attribute to the fact that the Lord released some kind of anointing for money. Now, I'm telling you that because 
I want to give it to you. Because the Lord said, whatever I freely received, I can freely give. You can all stand if you want. Now, those of you that stood the first time, get over yourselves. Receive this. Don't do the, well, I need to like spend a year in poverty to tell the Lord. Don't do that. Don't do that. All right. Don't do that. Let's say you haven't been tithing. You you haven't been giving. And the Lord really convicted you tonight. Okay. You're convicted. You stood up. You asked God to forgive you. Okay. Now, Isaac sowed in a famine and he reaped a hundredfold. And that was after he lied about his wife. And we're just assuming that he repented. Okay, he repented because that's what he should have done. So he repented. And you did too. So you received this, okay? Don't let it like bounce off of you. So just put your hands out in front of you and I'm going to pray for you. Now, I'm going to tell you that when John, my friend John, prayed for us, I didn't feel a thing. None of my children felt anything. But something from that moment on changed. And the team that knows me will testify that. I'm going to pray for you right now. And something's going to change. You're like, I have no faith for this. That's all right. You don't need to have faith. I got it. I know how this works. And uh, the people that are watching by webcast, you do the same thing right now. Just in your homes, everywhere. Just just stand up right now. Put your hands out and receive this. And those that are at home, uh, hopefully you repented first. If you didn't, you need to do that. Okay. Even if Isaac didn't, this, you need to. Okay. So, Lord, I just release. I think you did. Lord, I release. I re, first, first of all, I break the spirit of poverty over this tribe and this family. Everybody who's in this room and their extended families. Abraham gave to Melchizedek and Levi, three generations later, was still getting credit for it. So tonight, Lord, I break the spirit of poverty over every person who's standing or who's listening by by podcast or webcast right now in the name of Jesus, that that spirit would be broken and it would change our mindset so that we no longer do things that sabotage you wanting to give back to us. Father, we just right now, we just break those mindsets that somehow equate being broke with being spiritual. We cancel that lie in Jesus' name and we release now wealth, not riches, wealth, not just money, wealth in the name of Jesus that you would release wealth on people, not the love of money, not the spirit of mammon, but wealth. You call us a royal priesthood that we that you would release us into ways of thinking that attract wealth. Not just about finances, but in every area of life. That we would live as wealthy people in friendships and relationships. That we live as wealthy people in our relationship to, to you as our king, as our God. That we would live as wealthy people in relationship to the enemy. That we would live as wealthy people in relationship to the way we see the world, the way that we do politics, the way that we, the way that we deal with each other. Lord, that we would always negotiate as wealthy people, that we negotiate, negotiate only for win-win, that we would never negotiate 
with the with people who don't know you to get what we can get. But that we would always consider that we have a source they don't have. That we'd always be thinking about how do I negotiate so that we can both walk away winning? That's how wealthy people think. They don't just think of themselves. Rich people only think about how they can get more money. But wealthy people think about their, how their life is affecting everyone. And Lord, we just released us. We release a spirit of wealth over these people. In Jesus' name. Lord, ten years from now, I pray that everyone in this room would have the same testimony. God forgave my debt. God prospered me. I was losing my house and God did a miracle and got it back. That the, the things we've been praying for just years on the, uh, before the offerings, that those things would begin to be, be released on us. First as seeds and then as great plants and, and, and whole harvested whole, whole, uh, uh, um, uh, farms and, and gardens. And Lord, I would just pray for prosperity over your people. And Lord, I pray tonight specifically for financial miracles for people that are in desperate situations. Now, raise your hand if you're in a desperate situation. Okay, those around you, just put your hand on them. They're in a desperate situation. This is, this is different. Like they need immediate relief. Okay? I want you to pray for them right now. Don't, don't pray, Lord, do your will. Just pray right now that they would be, that God would by a miracle meet their financial need. Pray that over them right now. Let it be done in some crazy way they never expected. Let it not even be related to their labor. That's what we like. In Jesus' name, Lord, we just release that over people. Release that over people right now.